Once again, we invite you to 1 Kings chapter 10, the first 13 verses of our series entitled Solomon and the Queen. Solomon and the Queen. 1 Kings 10, reading at verse 1. And when the queen of Sheba heard the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to prove him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great train, with camels that bear spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she was come to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart. And Solomon told her all her question. There was not anything hid from the king which he told her not. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's wisdom and the house that he had built and the meat of his table and the sitting of his servants and the attendance of his ministers and their apparel and his cupbearers and his ascent by which he went up unto the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. And she said to the king, It was a true report that I heard in mine own land of thy acts and of thy wisdom. Howbeit I believe not the words until I came and mine eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Thy wisdom and prosperity exceedeth the fame which I heard. Happy are thy men, happy are these thy servants, which stand continually before thee and that hear thy wisdom. Blessed be the Lord thy God, which delighteth in thee to set thee on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever, therefore made he thee king to do judgment and justice. And she gave the king an hundred and twenty talents of gold and of spices, very great store and precious stones. There came no more such abundance of spices as these which the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. And the navy also of Hiram that brought gold from Ophir, brought in from Ophir great plenty of almug trees and precious stones. And the king made of the almug trees pillars for the house of the Lord and for the king's house, harps also and psalteries for singers. There came no such almug trees nor were seen unto this day. And King Solomon gave unto the queen of Sheba all her desire, whatsoever she asked beside that which Solomon gave her of his royal bounty. So she turned and went to her own country, she and her servants. This is a series, and a concern always of preaching a series is that you lose people along the way. We hope we haven't lost you. We hope to hold your interest. Even though we read this 13 verses each time, we hope this is fresh and new to you. We hope it is edifying unto you. And as we've said at the beginning, we're speaking to you from this passage in the manner of a similitude. And I reference this all the time because I don't want to lose any of you. Any of you that are here or those that may be hearing other places, other times, audio or video. And the real key to understanding the similitude of Solomon and the Queen here is those words of Jesus, which I mention at the beginning of every sermon, Matthew 12 and 42, when Jesus referred to what we have read about right here. And he said, the queen of Sheba came, queen of Sheba came to Solomon, you know, and that she will rise up, I'm paraphrasing, in, in judgment of the generation Jesus lived in because she came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And he was commending her for that and saying, she'll judge this generation that he was speaking about. But I say unto you, a greater than Solomon is here. 
So again, that is the similitude. Similitude, as I've defined it for you in this series, is a comparative resemblance. Many times you have heard preachers and others speak of that when they say types and shadows of Christ. That's a similitude, a comparative resemblance. So in this again, we look and we read of this encounter between Solomon the king and the queen of Sheba. And what we should be seeing as believers is Jesus as Lord and Savior and King of kings and us as the queen of Sheba, the sinners who came and was just in awe of everything they saw and heard of him. He gave to her, she gave to him. We'll get into that later on when we come to her. But again, think of Jesus' words. And I'm kind of justifying this this again because I hope to hold your interest. Jesus said, a greater than Solomon is here. What is great? How do you know what great is? How do you know what greater is? How do you know what the greatest is? Now, as we all know, just those questions I've asked you consumes the time and energy of humanity in debating great things, good things, and the greatest, right? Because there's so many spheres of of activity and things to discuss. The greatest this, the greatest that, the greatest whatever. But how do we know? How do we even settle it in our own mind, whether we can convince anybody else or not? Well, one way is if the Bible says something's the greatest, that's it. That's the end of the story. There's no need to debate it. And again, uh, Solomon was the greatest king possessing more wisdom than anybody ever has been or will be other than Jesus Christ himself. End of story. There's nothing to debate. But the bottom line is, the answer to those questions I just asked you is, You determine what is good, what is better, and what is best, or what is great, or what is greater, and what is greatest by comparing. Can you determine it any other way? I mean, if there is a greater, then they had to be a great. And that's exactly what Jesus was saying. And if you get this key, then I won't lose you in this series. Because as I have told you, we're continually looking at Solomon to see his greatness. Because without seeing his greatness, we will never see the greater of the greatest Christ. We learn by comparison. And how many times, it's a rhetorical question, in your life and my life have we thought we had the best of something only to find there was something better. And that maybe even upon getting that or having that or tasting that or experiencing that, we found out that still wasn't There was still the greatest above that. So again, we look at Solomon for all of his greatness. And then he shrinks into the sunset when we compare him to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where I'm trying to take you I hope you're still on on the bus with us. And if you are, let's continue, shall we? So Jesus' own words is the key 
to find in this interesting, to being able to read these things and see into the depths of things that, that Solomon was and that Jesus is more of. And even when we get into the queen of seeing ourselves as a sinner in and through her. Well, the last time the point we made was that Solomon built the Lord a house. It was the temple. And upon building that temple, he offered a prayer of dedication and intercession. And we read that to you the last time back in the 8th chapter, very lengthy reading with some comments in verses 12 through 61. We're not going to read it again today. I wish we had the time to do so, so that we could put that prayer in our left hand and look at the intercessory prayer of Jesus in the right, and that's what we're going to do through the message, trying to comment, but we're just not going to read them. But essentially, that's what we're looking at. Solomon's prayer of dedication and intercession, which we read last week in 1 Kings 8, compared with the intercessory prayer of Jesus in John 17 which we are going to read today. And then I will point out a few points of things in there without going into great depth about some things that are in there. But as I told you last week, Solomon's prayer there that we read is one of the greatest in the Old Testament. David's prayer, Solomon's prayer, Hannah's prayer, those three to me stand out above everything else in the Old Testament. I cannot imagine anybody reading those three and thinking there's anything better in the Old Testament than what those individuals said. Solomon's prayer was, as we said, both a prayer of dedication and a prayer of intercession. At the very beginning of that prayer, and I'm just going to reference these things, in the 12th verse through the 21st verse, he is basically speaking in that continually about God's fulfilling his word and his promise about the building of the temple. In fact, before we read John 17, turn back over there with me and we'll just take care of this part and then we'll compare the intercessory part. 1 Kings 8, and there in verse 20, notice he says, The Lord hath performed his word which he spake. I am risen up in the room of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised and have built an house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. So when he begins this in verses 12 through 21, he's talking about, in a sense, this dedication of the temple from this perspective or viewpoint that the Lord said he was going to build it and the Lord gave the means by which he was going to build it as well as the dimensions and how it was to be built and the Lord did it. You can go back to verse 15 there and he, he begins with blessed in this prayer or the dedication prayer. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel which spake with his mouth to David and with his hand fulfilled it. God said he's going to do it and God did it. That's what he's saying. And then in verse 20 there, he performed it as he promised it. Look down to verse 24. Thou that thou promised him and has fulfilled it with thine hand. Verse 25, thou promised him. So again, the temple was a fulfillment of what had been promised 
and what had been done. Uh, Solomon said, I'm risen up in the room of David my father as king, just like you said I would. I'm set on the throne of Israel, just like you said I would. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, just like you said I would. All of that fulfilled in the temple. All right, let's go back to uh, John chapter 17 now and read the Lord's intercessory prayer. And really after that portion... Um, in verse 22 and 23 is where the Lord, or not the Lord, Solomon really began the intercessory part of his prayer and carried that on toward the end. So that will be the part that compares with what the Lord said here. John 17 and verse 1. These words spake Jesus and lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come, glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. And I'm going to pause just right there and make the point of what I just said to you concerning Solomon, concerning God promising, speaking, revealing of what he was going to do through Solomon and building the temple and all of that. That was a, again, father-son relationship and revelation. God involved both David, his father, and Solomon, and he executed it, right? Did it all right there. Well, verse 1, that Jesus' words say here, encompass all of that. When he says, glorify thy son, that thy son may glorify thee. God providentially blessed David and Solomon and the building of the temple and Solomon in his prayer back is glorifying the God who promised it and did it. I mean, I hope you see that. Chew on it a little bit if you need to in your mind. But that faithfulness of God there is the same faithfulness here. Glorify thy son that thy son may glorify thee. God glorified David, glorified Solomon, glorified the temple. And Solomon is praying, Lord, that we might glorify you. So it's a connection there. Verse 2, as thou hast given him, Christ is speaking of himself, but in the third person, power over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Let's think for a moment again. Think about Solomon's power. Just think about it. I'm not going to comment. Just think about it. The power the man had. Power over everything. He had power over the politics, the economy, the worship. I mean, everything. A, A kingdom. Think of the power that he had because of his wisdom. That other men have lacked. They've had power in other areas, but not the power of wisdom. To rule. To manage. To organize. I mean, he had power. His fleshly sense, didn't he? He could say come, he could say go, he could say this, he could say that, and it it got done. But think of the power of our Lord. Earthly kings have power in this world and over other individuals and stuff. But who has power over all flesh that they can give eternal life? to as many as thou hast given him. Now we're talking real power. It's one thing to have a power in the fleshly, physical, earthly dimension, 
But Jesus Christ, you see, there's no comparison when we're talking about, as we did in Sunday school this morning, about have the power in spiritual divine matters. This is a sovereignty of our Savior that nobody else has ever had or ever will have. And we praise God for this. He has the power to save. And he will save because his name is Jesus. Thou shalt call his name Jesus because he shall save his people from their sins. Who is his people? It's right here. Christ gives, that's grace, eternal life to as many as, key phrase, as many as thou, Father, hast given him. Jesus, numerous times in Scripture, back in John chapter 6, refers to this, all that the Father giveth to me will come to me. All that the Father has given to me, I won't lose one of them. So forth and so on. This is the covenant of grace, the covenant of redemption. God the Father chose, elected, gave to God the Son. God the Son will sacrifice Himself for them, redeem them, the gift being given to them eternal life because of His great and wonderful sacrifice. Also, the Holy Spirit will quicken and indwell every one of them. So again, I hope you get it. Solomon was great. Solomon had power. No man has ever had this kind of power. And this is the power that's important, is the Son of Man quickeneth whom He will calleth unto him whom he will. Divine power. And this is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. And i got to make a comment here. This is not that they're going to wake up in heaven and know God then. No, you're going to know God here. There are some who are proponents and have been famous individuals that have literally went on record and said that there'll be people in heaven that never heard the name of Jesus. I don't believe that. I don't believe that for a moment. When Jesus said, my sheep know my voice, I don't think he is waiting about talking about when we get to heaven. No, that voice calls his sheep down here and we know who Jesus is down here and if you don't know the name of Jesus, there's no other name under heaven whereby you may be saved. You're not going to wake up in heaven and say, well, I wonder what this place is. wonder who runs this. No. We're going there because we know all about it. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Again, just notice the parallel thought process. Okay, you've got Solomon's prayers, lengthy as it is. Just, just, you know, hold it in your left hand and read this in your right. Solomon's prayer of dedication and intercession was given what? When the temple was finished. I mean, it was ready to go into, into what it had been made for. The worship of God, the sacrifices, and all the things that were to be done. Solomon finished it. it took him seven years. Jesus' ministry only lasted three, three and a half. But again, same thing. Both of them completed the work that God said they would do. And they did it. Jesus is, of course, again, the greater work <laughs> because it was redemption. Solomon was an architectural work, a building of a building. 
But they were both given work to do. They both finished it. Jesus obviously greatly superseded. He says, And now, O Father, glorify me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. Got to pause again. Do you think people knew that Solomon had a special gift? Nobody could miss that. Nobody could miss that. In fact, we were, I think the common saying would probably be when Solomon was king and reigning like he did, people would be saying about him what Jesus said about himself. There's never been anybody like Solomon. He's greater than everybody there has been. There's never been anybody. He's greater than all the kings. In fact, the Bible does say that. He's greater than all the kings of Israel. He had more knowledge, more majesty, more glory, more everything. And people knew it. They knew it. And then when Jesus showed up and says a greater than Solomon is here, people knew it. They have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. And that's the point Solomon made in his prayer. Lord, I have, like David, I've only done what you told me to do and I've done it with the things you have provided and it's really the ability you gave me and everything providentially that it's been done. Solomon didn't pat himself on the back in that prayer, neither should we. He glorified God. Christ is glorifying God here. And Solomon's prayer got very, very intercessory throughout that remainder of that latter part, as we'll point out to you a little bit later. Jesus' prayer is even more intimate. It goes even deeper than what Solomon did. I challenge you, go home and read Solomon's prayer over and over. Go, go back and read this one over and over. And you say, that one is just great, but this one is just beyond comprehension. Well, it should be. Here we have the impeccable incarnate Son of God praying to God the Father. This one is as pure as it gets. And from a human standpoint, probably Solomon's couldn't get any purer. But here, this is absolutely pure. Solomon might could have said some things better a different way with a different motive or whatever, but not Jesus. Jesus got it right the first time. And this is as intimate as it gets. And it should always humble us to read this. If you're a child of God, how can it not? How can it not bless your heart? If you're a child of God, you're in here over and over and over again in John 17. You were right there in verse 2 if you're saved today. And you know it wasn't an accident. It wasn't your will. It wasn't your choice. And it wasn't what somebody else has done. It was God's eternal election and Christ's sacrifice in time. Verse 8, For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me. They have received them and have known surely that I came out from thee and that they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. And again, that given me goes all the way back to verse 2 again. And John chapter 6 again. All that the Father giveth me, all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in thee. That ought to just cause your heart to leap with joy. 
All that are Christ are God's. All that are God's are Christ. Can't separate the two. They're called the elect. They're called the redeemed. They're called the saints. They're the sheep. They go by so many names. And I am glorified in them. Now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. Have you noticed how many times again, those thou give me, you know what I mean? Give me, give me. You gave to me, I gave to them. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now come I to thee. And these things I speak in the world that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word and the world hated them because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. I pray that thou shouldest take them out, not take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. You've got to pause there again and just make sure. Are you getting it? Who, what's Jesus talking about mostly here? Those given to him. Those for whom he interceding. Those for whom he died. Those for whom he loved. I mean, his own. Again, Solomon's prayer was a prayer of intercession. This is a greater prayer of intercession. Verse 21. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them which also shall believe on me through their word. That they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they, may, they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me have I given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known thee, that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. I believe this prayer is so great that one cannot help but read it and believe that there is God. And that this book is true. Compare anything any human being has ever written. And you won't read anything like this. I, I challenge you on that. I challenge anybody on that. The wording. The motive. The heart. The humility. The love. The sacrifice. The intercession. It just goes beyond it all. It supersedes it all. Which tells us God is real. 
Christ is the only Savior. This is the only way to be saved. And this is God's book. Just by reading this one portion right here. There's nothing like it. Solomon made mention in 1 Kings 8.27 about God dwelling in darkness and shall God dwell on the earth? How did God dwell on the earth back there in Solomon's time and in the temple? And we'll look at that in another point. But for now, God always manifests His presence unto men back then in the old tabernacle with Moses and then He would in the temple by what? A thing called we call the Shekinah glory, right? I mean, the cloud descended. The cloud filled the temple, we read about previous to Solomon's prayer. The presence of God. Solomon said, the heavens and earth can't contain you. How can the house that I built hold you? The eternality, the infinite, omnipresent God. Solomon believed that. He recognized the temple was nothing as far as a place for God to dwell in. We all dwell in some kind of a home or a house that's bigger than we are, but not so with God. But that was the sign of God's presence, wasn't it? And that question, shall God dwell on the earth? Yes. And we have a Savior whose name was Emmanuel. God with us. He was born of a virgin, incarnate, had no earthly father, and when he walked upon this earth and lived approximately 33, 33 and a half years, for that brief period of time, that generation literally had God with us in the flesh. Now one day we're going to experience that. We don't have God in the flesh now. We have God by the Holy Spirit. And there again, I cannot emphasize to you, and we shouldn't wish we had lived back then. We're meant to live now, but we can look back and wonder and be amazed because one day we can anticipate this, what it would have been like to be in His presence, hear His words, watch His manner of life, His demeanor, all of that. Well, if you had your choice, what would you take? 33 and a half years or eternity? We're going to have eternity. We're not only going to have a thousand years on this earth, but we're going to have eternity with our King to behold Him, to see Him. We see Him now by faith in the Scriptures. But one day we'll see Him and know Him as nobody ever has. But again, shall God... Solomon asked the question, will God dwell... On the earth? Yeah. <laughs> Guess what? God said a virgin will conceive and, and you know, have a son and so forth. And he did. God brought it to pass. God did dwell on the earth in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. In the 8th chapter, I'm going to reference a few things and we'll press on here. In the 8th chapter in verse 29... Back there, Solomon makes a request that God's eyes would be opened toward this house night and day, toward the place that thou hast said, My name shall be there. Requesting again the 
holy place of the temple that God would look upon it favorably day and night when people came there to worship, sacrifice, or what have you. That's the house that Solomon built. What did Christ build? Christ built his church, didn't he? Solomon built something that was physical, that was earthly. Christ built something that was spiritual, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Solomon's petition was that his eyes, God's eyes, would look favorably upon the temple. Christ said concerning his church, the end of the commission, Matthew 28 and 20, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Christ is always with, in, and through, by the Holy Spirit, those who make up his true church. And I said true church because most churches are not the Lord's churches. The Lord has his church in the midst of the muddy waters of all kinds of things that call themselves churches. Unto him be glory through the church, world without end. Amen. Ephesians 3.21 Christ is in the midst of his church. Revelation chapter 1. So while Solomon made that petition concerning the temple, Jesus made the promise concerning his church. In 1 Kings, in that intercessory prayer, beginning at about verse 30 through verse 54, we see the interceding continually of Solomon. And he's speaking of a couple of things, actually several things in a chain sequence. He speaks of the people sinning, whether they neglect or do it willfully or negligently or however they do it, that if they sin... And when and how you providentially chasten them, that if they call upon you and repent and turn back, that you forgive them. That's intercession, folks. And he does that in verses 30 through 54. And that's what we read about to you mostly in John chapter 17. Christ interceding in every way possible for his people. I find it interesting that in Solomon's prayer in verse 41, he even includes people outside of Israel when he says, Moreover, concerning a stranger that is not of thy people, Israel, but cometh out of a far country for thy name's sake. For they shall hear of thy great name and thy strong hand and thy stretched out arm when he shall come and pray toward this house. Those that are outside of the commonwealth of Israel. And what did Christ say in John chapter 17? Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one. The outsiders. Provision made for others, not just Jews, but Gentiles also. And Christ talked about those that at that time were without, but certainly would be brought into the fold. And then also it said there, notice that, that uh, for they shall hear of thy great name and thy strong hand. That's a testimony. And what is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to the world? It is a testimony. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew chapter 5, 13 and 14. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Nothing stands out has ever stood out, ever will stand out in this world 
like the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It has been light and salt that nothing else has ever been or ever will be. Because just as the temple in Jerusalem was exactly the place that the Lord chose geographically and building-wise and time-wise to place His name, so the New Testament, after Christ started His church, the church that Jesus gave His life for is where the testimony of Christ, His Word, His doctrine, His teaching, His sacrifice, the Gospel, has been heralded throughout the world. Have people heard? Yes. Did they believe? Maybe, maybe not. But the world knows the name of Jesus did exactly as Jesus said it would. They were not just witnesses there in Jerusalem. It didn't stay there. No, He said, You shall be witnesses unto Me in Jerusalem, in Judea, and the uttermost parts of the world. So again, some marvelous, marvelous comparisons there when you look at these two intercessory prayers that were made. Jesus, again, greatly superseding. Let me make another point quickly, if I may. We've got a little time left. And the next point I want to make is the miraculous power, or we might even call it annoying, of the two houses. The one that Solomon built and the one that Jesus built the church. Now, we can see Solomon's, I mentioned it earlier, and I won't take the time to read it because we don't have the time, but in the first 11 verses of 1 Kings 8, we see here Solomon bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the temple after the house of the Lord was finished. And when this was done, and again, the ark had always symbolized was where the Lord's presence was because on top of the ark, the law being inside was the thing called the mercy seat, right? And that's where the Shekinah glory of God always came down, was on the mercy seat. Not somewhere else, on the mercy seat. God dealing with men through mercy. And again, there's just so many things here, it's hard to confine my thoughts to it. But again, the law of God is in there. Well, we got a problem with the law of God, don't we? Because we broke it. <laughs> what do we need? What's on top of it? Mercy. Where's God at above that? Where does God meet us? Mercy seat. Wow. Beautiful, is it not? And who is our mercy seat? Christ. Christ is our mercy seat. But do look with me quickly here. It says to, in uh, chapter 8, verse 10, and it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. Now I have often wondered, and I'm sure you have too, what it was like in the Mosaic times in the wilderness in those various times. And I mean, God would just speak and then show up. I mean, sometimes he'd call them out, didn't he? Call Moses. Three, you get up here right now. Boom, boom, there's the Lord. You know, I mean, wow. I mean, Sinai was something, but God did that numerous times on that journey. And I mean, when you saw that cloud coming down, I mean, whether you were a believer or not, you certainly wasn't a doubter at that moment, I guarantee you. 
So when Solomon did everything he was told to do, the way it was supposed to be done, God showed His blessing upon it by His presence. God doesn't show up where He's disobeyed except with a switch or a rod or to chase it. But when His presence shows up like this, where people are trying to worship and minister to God and God just fills the house. I mean, what? think with me, will you? What would that have been like? How, how could... Why didn't everybody just fall down and believe? I mean, you know. But again, it's in here, not, it, not in the eye, isn't it? But let's make the quick comparison. So here was a special presence, and we might say a special anointing, where again, God's saying, yep, I'm putting my stamp on this, on all of this. It's got my approval. I'm here. That proves it's all okay with me. How did that work with the church? Special event, wasn't there? Acts chapter 2. Was it not promised before Christ even began His earthly ministry? Acts chapter 2 verse 1, When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. It was a special anointing. Stay with me, I'll make this point and we'll be dismissed. Special anointing that had been promised and prophesied. Who promised and prophesied? God promised it. John the Baptist prophesied it. He said, I read it to you last week, I indeed baptize you with water, but there cometh one after me. He will baptize you with fire. Who was that? Jesus Christ. When did it happen? On Pentecost. What happened on Pentecost? And I want to set the record straight as I often do because the record is confused. Nobody on the day of Pentecost was baptized by the Holy Spirit. No. The Holy Spirit doesn't baptize anybody. John said, He that cometh after me will baptize you. Who's that? Christ, the head of the church. When you have a baptism, you've got to have an administrator, you've got to have a candidate, and you've got to have an element. On the day of Pentecost, as John said, exactly according to Scripture, Jesus Christ, the head of His already in existence church, was baptized by Him in the Holy Spirit. When we practice baptism as the Lord's church, we administer it as a church upon a born-again, believing individual in Christ in the element of water. On the day of Pentecost, Christ was the administrator, His church was the candidate, and the element with which they were baptized, as John said, was the Holy Spirit. It was a special anointing. It has not been repeated. It will not be repeated. It was promised. It came to pass. 
And it was more special what happened in Acts 2 than what happened in 1 Kings chapter 8. Because the house that Jesus built, his church, is a greater institution than the temple that Solomon built. That one had gold and silver and all kinds of earthly value. But the church that Jesus built has a spiritual value that exceeds everything that exists in the world today. Because you know who's in the Lord's church? His people. His children. His redeemed. His jewels. And let me say to you today before we close and leave, there's nothing more precious in this world than the people of God the elect of God, the chosen of God, those whom He has set in His church and will one day take as His bride. That's special. Count your blessings today if you can include yourself in that number. And if you cannot, begin to think about why you cannot. And how is it possible that you can reap the benefits of other believers? And it's very simple. Repent of your sins and believe the gospel. You can become a part of that family of God and have the promises of God applied to you. Come unto me, the Lord said. Come unto me. I won't tell you where to go except what the Lord said. Come unto me. And you can have a part of that. The Lord's church is very special. May we always esteem it so and esteem it to be a privilege of His church. To Him be the glory. One day He's coming for. We can't wait to that.